And now, for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PNR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Hello, content marketers. I'm Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 40 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded on Tuesday, August 19th, 2014. So have you had your fill of people pouring ice water over their heads to feed the ALS organization? Have you found yourself looking for a new challenge to nominate people for? Well, we nominate you to go PNR on iTunes and give us a review, won't you? Our little weekly bucket of content marketing dumped over your head. Because remember, folks, a review on iTunes, it's more than just a drop in the bucket. And of course, we hope you'll also consider giving yourself a bucket of goodness each week and subscribing to our little show here at iTunes or Stitcher. And as always, stop by the blog post on Saturdays at thisoldmarketing.com where you'll find all the links to the news and everything we talk about on the show. All right, enough of that. As it's time, time, time as always to welcome my colleague, my co-host, and good, good friend coming from Cleveland, Ohio. Please welcome the Emmy Award winner for content marketing, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you, my friend? I am doing fantastic, and first of all, I have to uh, send our apologies to the few listeners who wondered why our podcast wasn't up in time, and that's completely (laughs) my fault, and Robert, you were so nice enough to push this a day. I was with the family at Kelly's Island, which... For those people a very good excuse, might I well, might add. Well, a lot of people don't know where Kelly's Island is one of those rare beauties. Only about 300 people live on the island. It's just north of, most people know, Sandusky, Cedar Point, an hour west of Cleveland. It's an island up there. I spent a lot of my youth up there, and we took the kids over and a couple of their friends, and it was fantastic, but not the greatest Wi-Fi. So <laughs> we didn't think we were going to be able to pull this off. So thank you, my friend, for, for doing Absolutely. that. That's one thing. The second thing is, I'm checking my Facebook feed. I've never seen – I mean, I think that every one of my Facebook friends dumped cold water over their head. I mean, uh, it's, have you ever yeah. seen anything like this? I have not seen anything like this. And, of course, I was challenged and made a donation in lieu because it felt like that was the more productive thing to do, quite frankly, than dump a bunch of ice water. I might have been done, but the one I loved was Charlie Sheen. I don't know if you saw I didn't Charlie see it. Sheen. I didn't how, how, you know, What did he do? He Charlie Sheen basically he goes I'm gonna do the ALS challenge and he takes the bucket and he dumps it over his head and it's a, a it's a pile of cash and oh he said oh gosh. what's what's going on here he said oh this isn't ice because ice melts this is ten thousand dollars in cash which will I'm gonna donate to the ALS oh that was um, and very then he, Charlie Sheen and then he exactly and then he calls out John Cryer Chuck Lorre and Ashton Kutcher and asks them and challenges them to do exactly what he did, not just dump water over their head, but to actually dump wow. cash over their head. Um, and we'll see if they, if well, they actually do it, it. It, it. The one I did see in true BuzzFeed fashion, they did a, a the 22 of the worst ones out there or something like that. There's a, yeah. there's a video. There's mod, some funny there's ones. There's a video montage out there with people <laughs> getting hit by these buckets accidentally. <laughs> And I swear it's Did you so see the fun. one where the kid actually dumps the bucket on himself instead of his who he's supposed to dump it on? No, I see like there's two two girls that are trying to dump it over their girlfriend and the one girl falls in the lake and <laughs> the, the ones that are really funny is when uh, somebody's trying to dump it over another person, but they get hit with the bucket or whatever, yeah, or the cooler. Right, that exactly. They, they just, like, knock them out. They're like, oh, my right. God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we shouldn't be making light of it. The last I saw, over $14 million were generated. $15 million now. $15 yeah, million. more than $15 ALS million. Dollars. Yeah. Ice bucket it's, challenge. I did it's the, a, 
It's a brilliant campaign. It's really a amazing. brilliant yeah. campaign. Yeah, I did the same thing you did. I was challenged by uh, our uh, event director, Kelly Wetzel, and I said, I will, I'm donating. Thank you so much. And the only ice water I'll be drinking here will be on in Kelly's or doing a be drinking here at Kelly's Island and have a good one. But yeah, I mean, I, it's a great cause. Wonderful cause. Wonderful. Yeah, just amazing yeah. stuff. All right. Shall we to the news then? I think I think we shall. Ah, oh, we shall. All right. Well, it was it has not been a great two weeks for those who would be the proponents of uh the native advertising practice. Um to say it lightly, they have just gotten their butt kicked. Um Two articles that came out that will kick off the news this week. Um, the first comes a really interesting article uh, that actually mentions your post, uh, of all things, um, comes from our friends at Velocity Partners over in the UK, our good, good friend Doug Kessler there, who takes a lot of what he calls the native advertising apologists uh, to task um, and brings up some interesting points, certainly um, points that have been made elsewhere, perhaps not to the elegant state that he always writes things in, but basically takes a lot of people who are proponents of native, native advertising to task by saying, look, this is a real problem, and then actually even takes you a little to task on some of the solutions you offered up in your blog post by saying, no, 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 this is never going to work. Um, what did you think of this post? Well, first of all, I love posts that tell me that I'm wrong. It seems to be <laughs> happening a lot lately. <laughs> we see more and more of those posts out here. Well, of course, Doug has a point. I think we should just go through some of these. Basically, Doug is talking on the same lines of what John Oliver was talking about, where right. if you have to post a sign, it's a problem. Right. And there are some problem areas, by the way. If you look at the Forbes brand voice program, it's very hard to figure out whether that's sponsored content or not. That I think that is a problem. Opposed to the New York Times that have 32 do not enter signs in front of their native advertising <laughs> exactly. program. Right. Which I'm like, if you're going to do that, why do it at all? I mean, right. really. But um, so he goes through two of mine. And I think he's probably taking me to task for some really good reasons. One, I, so, so in my previous column, I talked about three solutions to native advertising issue. And he takes me to task for two of them. <laughs> so 66 point. Seven percent. The um, <laughs> the first one is that I I made the suggestion that native advertising, while sold by the sales team, may maybe should be approved by the editorial staff. And he goes through and says that's this, that's a stupid idea, Joe, because that he might even make the case that that's worse. That if it needs to be covered, it needs to be covered editorially, but don't get them approving an ad. So hey, I can see that. I can see it working actually different ways for different brands but we'll go beyond that and uh, then he gives me the then he goes on about uh, my my second one was brands need to stop submitting appalling content appalling native advertising based content and he basically says it's not the content it's basically the fact that um it's the source of that content it's that there is real trickery involved and you know we've talked about this robert what's what's your take on on this from the trickery well, standpoint, the deception here. You is know, there deception? Look, I think this is largely – well, there may be, but it's unintended. I don't think you've got a lot of sort of editors and publishers that are sitting there behind, you know, 
petting their white cat, going, wah, ha, 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 let's fool them all. Let's, you know, I mean, they're not supervillains here. They're, they're people searching for a business model, and they're trying to make their way as best they can um, in, a new, in a new world. And they see the the floor is very shaky and very uh, uh, you know underneath them, and they're trying you know they're trying as best they can to react to what's going on around them and by offering up new ways to go to market. So, is it the best way? I don't think so. And and I think Doug makes a really set of great points here. Um, you know the the one that and and I I will not be so uh, uh, sort of self-centered to think that he was actually mentioning me, but he actually brings up a point that I brought up last week, um, his third one, which is editorial has always had an agenda and always, quote-unquote, sold stuff. Um, And I made a pretty big point about that last week on the show. So, again, I don't know that he's mentioning me here, but it is one that I mentioned, so I'll I'll, I'll bring it up specifically, Um, which is this idea that the publisher doesn't have a set of a you know doesn't buy either inclusion or exclusion of the advertisers they have or the editorial strategy that they have or that the ads that they run or don't run and the content that they run or don't run of course they have an of of you know an opinion and a point of view on things and so i'm not sure that you can actually expect as he does impartiality nor do i think them including native advertising necessarily ruins the impartiality so i'm not sure i buy that argument um, but having said that, I understand his point, which is he's not, you know, he, he thinks that's a slippery slope, at least the way I'm interpreting what he's writing here is, is that it's a slippery slope and that, as he says, we should never expect a newspaper to be impartial or transparent if, uh, you know, if, if uh, you know, if that's our argument, right? So, and another way he thinks, as he says, this way fascism lies. And, you know, I'm not sure I get that dramatic about it um, because, I again, I don't think that there's necessarily – a villainous attitude here. I just think it's somebody, I think they're actually, and he says this at the very end, he says, you know, this is the problem is the business model is flawed, right? So, and he actually then gives kudos to you where he talks through the ideas, you know, Andreessen's nine different ways to fund a news media organization. What I really love about the end of his piece, um, you know, so he and I can come to fisticuffs over beers and get drunk together and, and argue over Noam Chomsky and <laughs> all that sort of thing. I'm sure but, that would be. Yeah, I'm sure everybody yeah. wants to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> so because um, I got lots to say about Noam Chomsky as well. But anyway, but I what I love at the end is his his conclusion. Right. When he gets into right. Basically, if you're a reader, let the publishers know how you feel. Let the market decide. Love that. If you're a publisher, beware. You're trying to sell out your biggest asset. You've made this point innumerable times on the show. And if you're a marketer, as I've said innumerable times on the show, exploit the hell out of native advertising before publishers figure out what they're doing. Those three points are the biggest takeaways. I mean, they, he couldn't have taken the words out of our mouth, I think, more succinctly. I mean, it's, it's, it's exactly that, right? So as, as the world turns beneath us and as we all try and figure out the way that publishing is going to evolve and the way that advertising and paid media and earned media and owned media will evolve as strengths of the marketer, I think that's great advice. Yeah, there's, I do love the end. I love what he's talking about. I think it's, there's, there's two takes. Some I think some native is accepted more than others. I think that your BuzzFeed native is you can swallow that a lot more than you can from the New York Times. And I and I'm speaking personally as well. 
I see I native from, true. from BuzzFeed. It's, it's probably the same stuff. It's, 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 it's a spectrum for sure. I mean, as he uses in the example, right, if, if Chevron is going to go to the New York Times and do something on energy, why not just send a reporter out to do that and cover it like a normal story? Totally get it, right? I get that. But, you know, Coca-Cola doing something fun and entertaining and interesting and buying space on BuzzFeed to tell that story and make that article – I don't think there's any harm. You know, I mean, it's already happening, right? I mean, if you if you watch any, and I live in L.A., so I can tell you for a fact that this is true, any of the Entertainment Tonight or Hollywood Tonight or any of those shows that you see, they've got native advertising all through that, right? You know, yeah. they'll have somebody from L'Oreal who'll be on, you know, just happens to be doing a makeover of some starlet. And by the way, she uses this lipstick and she carries this handbag and all of that. It's part of the editorial, quote unquote, or the content of the show, but it's clearly a paid placement to be in as part of the but editorial. See, yeah, and you, but that's a good point. That's much, like entertainment news. I think people will not question and they get it, right? I think most people get it and it's okay because it's more entertainment. But if you right. integrate in that, that into like traditionally hard news sources that's when you get into some problems i think right and that's a brand thing right because you know you start asking yourself all right well in that spectrum where does something like you know wired or where does national geographic or where does you know some of these brands that aren't necessarily news but aren't necessarily sort of just homespun entertainment bubblegum either they're sort of somewhere in the middle yep. and that's where i think It'll, you know, because what we're ultimately talking about here, as we've also said many times before, this is ultimately a brand strategy, right? This is a, this is, a, this is, this is not going to be a binary on or off situation. Some brands, some publishing brands, will take to this more than others. Oh, this is cotton candy for ad ad, ad agencies and and brands out there that are used to uh, telling stories and campaigns. They're just absolutely eating this up, and they're putting budget aside. And it may, and now you've got the programmatic native folks that are coming in, which, I, by the way, I get an email from every day from a new programmatic native advertising solution that that's going to rock the world. That is buzzword bingo, my friend. Oh, my that God. Is, that is, I mean, that and, is, and, that. and, of course, and that scares me, right? We talked about this on the show before. It's like you start – telling a story and then you say okay well which audiences are going to relate to this and you're gonna you're asking for trouble that's right frankly the publisher is asking for trouble here here's what i think here's my of course i love to put on predictions because that way some more people can tell me i'm wrong i think <laughs> that there's going in the next six months there's going to be a big media company like a new york times uh like a uh, washington post something some organization like that some brand that's going to say they're completely moving away from native. I think somebody's going to do it. Now, BuzzFeeds oh. of the world are going to continue to drive 100% of their revenues from it, and good for them. But I think that that's where, you know, you and I talked about it. Doug talks about it. We need a business model change in some of these organizations because I think that in some – and this is why there's an opportunity for marketers here to exploit this because some of these brands – are going to say, look, we're killing ourselves. We can't monetize effectively our advertising on our other properties, and we're getting opt-outs of our of our email addresses. We're getting all kinds of bad things happening because of native, and we've got to move our business model. And they're going to say, stop. Yeah. So, yeah, I I I think that's exactly right. You know what the funny thing is? 
is that I think one of the hardest things, and, and, and I don't know that the, I'm going to say this out loud sort of in the stream of consciousness here, but I don't know that this is actually true. I want to think about it a little more, but I'll say it anyway just in the spirit. It strikes me that those that are, are least able to are, have the biggest opportunity with native advertising. And what I mean by that is if you think about news, daily news, that is the one content that's sort of the most commoditized these days in terms of just available everywhere from citizen reporting. You know, Just reporting on the day's events is the most commoditized and hardest to differentiate versus something like a Wired or, a, or you know, some uh, fashion magazine where the content is heavily editorialized and has a distinct point of view, et cetera. And it seems like it's the exact opposite spectrum for where native advertising fits. So you said, are you saying that where's the, op- so words, where's the opportunity? In other words, it's, 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 it's much harder for the daily news yeah. guys to say no to native advertising because their content is so commoditized and they're trying to find ways to differentiate by giving, you know, it's basically selling more space is, is really what they're doing is they're selling larger chunks of real estate to advertisers and where where you've got magazines like a Wired or a Maxim or a, a you know a GQ or something like that, where you've got highly point of view editorial, where it might actually be okay to have native advertising, it's actually they have less of a need for it. I suspect. No, I would, you're, you, no you see what I'm saying? It's a good point. Yeah, and I mean yeah. that that's where you see, especially in the dailies where you see all kinds of experimentation of the business model. you got yeah. affiliate programs running. They're doing local events. Uh, I mean, they're out there with the balloons doing stuff out on the corner. I mean, there's lots of things going on because they don't know how to monetize this because the advertising well is drying up. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. Well, there's another one that we should cover just sort of be paired with this. And by the way, hats off to Doug. Huge kudos. Love the article. Um, it was it was really great as always. He is such a smart writer. Um, so hats off to him for that. This next article, however, just sort of looking through it, also on native advertising, and we paired it for a reason because it's it's uh, uh, they're they're basically trying to make the same argument, although Doug makes it much more elegantly. I think um, is this article that says native advertising is further proof we've lost our way. It comes from Digiday. Um, and was published this week, um, and basically goes on. And again, I mean, here we go. John Oliver has uncovered a right. Uh, what I want to know a lot is, is you know, this native advertising thing was big before John Oliver sort of uncovered this rock, but he seems to have uncovered quite a bit of. It tells ire. you how big of a following John Oliver. No has. kidding. Yeah, um, and he then goes on to say, uh, well, I don't know exactly what he's trying to say here, but I, but my, my but my guess is is that what he's saying here is that that publishers have lost their way i think is he saying or is he saying marketers have lost their way it's hard to figure out what he's exactly saying i kind of took from it that he was trying to say that marketers have lost their way with this whole thing i don't know what did you take out of this well it (laughs) i had a little problem with it it's interesting yeah it's interesting to the point where basically it gets to the end saying that I mean, what we've been saying, what's your story? Where can you add value to your audience and build your own audience instead of renting the credibility off of somebody else's back? Right. I believe 
he's saying, I mean, and then ultimately, if you get to the end, you think that, oh, marketers have lost their way. Well, marketers haven't lost their way at all. Marketers are doing what marketers always do and look for whatever opportunity they can, and they'll exploit it until it's gone. That's what marketers have been doing since the dawn of time. So I'm assuming then it's got to be publishers losing their way, and we talked about that. And I would say that some publishers have lost their way because of... (laughs) Because of all the things that we're seeing, and we're seeing more native opportunities. Oh, the one thing I did want to mention too, and I don't know if you you're not a big Instagram guy, correct? I'm a I'm a I'm a medium Instagram guy. I like it. I like it. Uh, I like it a lot. I'm not a heavy user. Well, today, and I don't know. I didn't see any formal launches, but I have been on an island for three days. But Instagram, I was checked out Instagram. You were, to, you were on an island in Ohio. It's hey, not like you were in the middle of hey, the Atlantic Ocean. Hey, or something. it's still an island. It's still an island. Um, uh, I'm not sure that says more about Ohio or if it says more it was about a three day anyway. tour. <laughs> um, inst- I saw my first ad on Instagram. I did. I thought they were. Oh, ad did free. you really? Yeah. So I, and, and I wrote it down just for you. Uh, it was Banana Republic. It said okay. sponsored at the side, big sponsored on the right side, and you click on it, and it'll go into what this is, and that we're trying to make it relevant for the things that you like. And of course, it's it must be a test ad because uh, some young guy uh, with a leather jacket on a motorcycle, just not my type. Honestly, nothing wrong with it, but just not not my type. Well. I've is never, there something you're not telling us, Joe? I don't even think I've been in a Banana Republic, or I don't necessarily like pictures like that. But hey, you know, that's <laughs> they're really doing a good job uh, understanding in my preference. That might be a good segue into the next article. But the the but, long long story short, I think that what the, this article is talking about is it would be nice if we started to look at long-term programs where we can build an audience instead of chasing an audience on somebody else's platform. I mean, I think that's Well, there is that. I mean, there's absolutely. I mean, that's that's, you know, we've talked about that, you know, innumerable times yep. here, which is, you know, this idea of of you know, not building your home on rented land and all that. And but I still think for marketers, right? You know, so coming back to well, two things I'll I'll, I'll make a point on. One is sort of this idea from a marketing standpoint, you know, taking advantage, you know, you know, getting in while the getting's good kind of stuff, you know, and, and, you know, using native advertising to steal audiences is a, is a, is an interesting uh, way to try and start to jumpstart an audience for your own owned media platform, whatever it may be. The other thing is, is that there was actually a really interesting comment. Uh, uh, there was a couple yours included to Doug's article and one, it was from Ryan's, uh, Ryan over at Forrester who actually commented on Doug's article and, and brought up the whole idea of, the social aspect of this, right? So it's not just long form content, which we often sort of focus on in terms of native advertising, but also sort of the in-stream tweets, you know, Facebook posts and all those sorts of things that also make up native advertising. And, and he was saying, you know, um, he and, he and Doug actually had a really interesting interchange. I, I thought talking about how, uh, you know, how those things are, are, are also, you know, they're the kinds of things that are that that bug him. But then Ryan makes the point that, you know what, it, it's kind of like pre-roll, right? You know, so you browse through four or five uh, Facebook posts that are that are from your friends. And then you see and then you see the one, you know, that's sort of sponsored by or liked by, you know, one of your friends, et cetera, et cetera, which does segue really nicely into our into our next into our next article. But did you did you does that make sense? I, I just think you're, you're right. No. There in this uh, fervor 
among native advertising that John Oliver started, you never see the examples. Oh, look at Facebook sponsored content in my stream. You never right. see that. It's always the New York Times or the Guardian or Forbes or something like that, which is odd, right? It's almost why is that? Is it because well, it it's may be, newer? It may be that we look at Facebook. Grew- it may be that we look at Facebook like the Entertainment Tonight, right? I mean, no, but you know, we don't really look at Facebook to get our quote unquote serious news. Although we often get serious news through Facebook, we don't. Maybe that's maybe that's okay. Maybe the maybe the because it's our theoretically quote unquote our friends that are displaying this, you know life stream in front of us maybe we sort of you know it's not sort of someone that we look up to with this you know granite you know edifice the trust in terms of you know telling us the truth as it's going to be right well i'll I'll tell you what this is the this is the water cooler conversation i'll tell you what you know facebook and of course now instagram because facebook owns them have to thank for this it's google i mean you and i remember remember when google launched their adwords program Remember, yeah, I mean, it was an outrage. Oh, my oh, goodness. Huge. It's big oh, confusion. Yeah. This is horrible, whatever. And People won't be able to tell the difference. <laughs> and then, of course, they tweaked it. They put the gradient behind it. They put it on yeah. the right and the top and whatever. And now, you know what? People don't care about any of that. Nobody mentions any of that anymore. And, it, yeah. it, and even, even with the whole Messenger thing, the Facebook Messenger thing that's come out, which I think is – I'm not a big fan of the Messenger app. I didn't want to go over to it anyhow, and we'll see what happens with that one. But I'm sure everybody will just assimilate into the Borg that way, and we'll go that direction. But nobody reads the terms and conditions. Basically, right. you can do what, they can take your data and do whatever they want with it. That's what the yes. terms and conditions are for Messenger. They, they should yes. really shorten the terms and conditions and just say, basically, we can do whatever we want. You can't <laughs> stop us if you use this app. And that's basically what it is. So yes. it's just weird how we have this double standard with traditional brands that have a different meaning for us. And I wonder if we're just in this middle period that in five to ten years it's not going to matter or you are going to see a line drawn in the sand where some will say, yes, our brand can stand this from publisher side. And then on the other side, you're going to say, no, we, we can't afford this. We have to have different revenue streams. It will no doubt be very interesting. Well, speaking of Facebook – um, this, I know you love this article. I love this article too. It was just such a wonderful, um, a wonderful read here. The article's entitled, I liked everything I saw on Facebook for, uh, two days and here's what happened. And basically it's this article, uh, that goes through this person who just basically liked every single thing that was on the screen and they you know, she ended up making all these rules that said, okay, we're going to, you know, I'm only going to like the, you know, because if you like the four things that are presented to you in sort of the, the series like that, they just give you another four. So they went, all right, no, 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 just the first four. And then, but they liked everything. And ultimately the feed became a, just a mess of ads and brand pages to the extent of which it started to infect her friends' feeds where the friends were actually saying hey are are you are you have you been hacked or is everything okay yeah. because we're seeing that you liked all these things that are just very weird it was a fascinating fascinating article about how the algorithm of facebook really truly works so my 
I've got two takes on this article, but basically it's worth reading. If you are interested in Facebook marketing at all, you should read it uh, because it's, it is funny by the end. It's getting help calls from friends. Are you okay? What happened? Somebody yeah, hacked right. in. Um, there's two things I learned from this, and it's this uh, sort of uh, structure that a lot of the call to action brands and like uh, whether right wing or left wing brands that uh, is it Matt it's Matt Honan from Wired I think is the the author That's right. who does this That's right So yes. as Matt's talking about it it's um uh what's the, I'm trying to find it in the article where he, where he goes to oh here it is the three step Basically, there's yes. first a sentence recounting some controversial news, then a, exp- a sentence explaining why this is good, and then a call to action, often ending in a question, and talks about how BAT is used by San Francisco Chronicle. It's used by all types of organizations. It must work pretty well. So that I just thought was interesting that a lot of organizations are using that. The second thing, and you don't realize this, but now that you think about it, of course, this is how your Facebook com- uh, feed comes up. I didn't. He was so as he's liking these hundreds of things for forty-eight hours. You you don't realize how much you liking stuff affects your friends' feeds. I mean that yeah. is that blows me away. So everything that I like, so everything everybody listening to this, everything that you like on Facebook is going to affect every one of your friends' streams in some way or another. Right? That's crazy. Yep. That's a lot of pressure. Like, I got to really start thinking about this stuff. Like, I can't like anything by Robert Rose anymore. I mean, this is just going to be bad. It's going to ruin my reputation. Yeah. I mean, seriously, this is crazy stuff. It's my- amazing how much It's amazing how much what he liked ended up on other people's feed, like, that uh, that showed that he was liking all of these things. I mean, to the extent that people were worried about him. I mean, that's... I mean, there are sort of like, you know, there's more, obviously it's more subtle because we're not liking every single thing that we see. But just as you start to like a, a lot of different things on a particular day, you, you can really, you can really be thinking about how, how you're affecting others' experience. Well, what Facebook. was interesting too, I mean, just think of this is outside of marketing. This is more on just being a citizen of a country. But he said he, st- he stopped he had to stop because he thought that he would start getting stalked by certain groups. So you could see that there are behavior uh, specialists, I'm sure, looking at people that like certain things on Facebook, and you're on some list. I mean, this on a, oh, from a serious sure. standpoint. I'm sh- I know that's happening right now. So I guess oh, I know from a I user standpoint, happening. Yeah. yeah, from a user standpoint, you got to be careful at when. <laughs> so I mean, I mean, I I think that you have to make a choice about what you are going to share. I think the people that talk about politics and get really with like far right or far left, I, I'm that scares me. I think it's too much. I think it's yeah. too much. I think you get yourself into a and then let alone the fact that you're going to be hit with all these brand messages. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, well, I've turned some of that off. I mean, there are a few friends on my Facebook that um, you know, that that really have causes that they're passionate about um and those i don't mind so much right you know so those i don't you know for example when uh, uh a good friend of the show and a friend of mine and i know a friend of yours joe chernoff is really passionate about uh sharks yeah and the and the and the welfare of sharks and he's been you know being have it being shark week and the whole thing with discovery channel and all of that and he did that really cool infographic with a partner of his that 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 did that and he's 
posting about that a lot, right? So seeing that doesn't bother me, but it's the there are some political stuff that just gets, you know, I just have to ignore it. I just can't even, you know, I just have to either scroll past it or because I start to see and speaking of, you know, them liking things that I start to see, I start to see some of the things that they've liked, which are not them saying, I feel this way about this thing. It's rather them liking some weird leftist or rightist, you know, magazine or article that just says something completely outrageous. And I just have to, I have to click on the down arrow well, and go, this don't is, show me this again. I, I don't want to see that. Well, on that point, listen to this, this quote, and this was pulled out a couple times in the comments. We set ourselves, our, we set up our political and social filter bubbles and they reinforce themselves. The things we read and watch have become hyper niche and cater to our specific interests. We go down rabbit holes of special interests until we're lost in the queen's garden cursing everyone above ground that i mean i've i've seen this happen i mean i know some people that one in particular that i'm thinking of that is so far right and that's all they hear that's all they see that's all they know and actually if you i know who you're talking about (laughs) if you start clicking on certain things and you do this you you'll never get the other side of the scenario you will just live in that bubble there was an article that went a little viral. God, we're going really off the rails here, but the, the there was a wonderful article that uh, that was being forwarded around, and I can't remember the name of it off. But maybe if I can find it, I'll send it, and we'll put it in the show notes. Where it 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 was what was wrong was not the you know not the that the that a certain side felt one way and another side felt the other way. It was that when one side feels that the other is. Uh, destroying the normalcy, right? Basically, when one side feels like the other side is destroying the country or when, you know, it, that was when it gets destructive. You know, it's, it, and, that's, and, and that's what you see so much of today is, is not that here's what I feel about X or Y or Z and why I'm so passionate about it. It's why the other side is completely destroying our way of life. Right. And, and it's something completely benign. The, a, a good one is there was a, uh, an article that came out today. I saw it was just wonderful. It talked about can we just stop arguing about the president taking vacations? Every, they all do it. Oh, and yeah. there's never a good time for them to do it. It's just never a good time for them to take a vacation. And they all do it. And so can we just stop beating each other up about that? I mean, it's just that's just one example. Yeah, you're right. I, I don't I don't even know if this is a marketing podcast anymore. Yeah, I know we're just, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we're just talking right. about other stuff that happens. This is a yeah, this is a pop culture podcast. We're just changing it all up here. Do we have we any got, other marketing got, stories we, we should talk about? We or? do actually. Oh, let's we talk do. about one. There is one last story that we were going to talk about here, and it is the growing pay gap. And this is a short story that we can just discuss briefly, but it has everything to do with what we're talking about with content marketing for sure. The growing pay gap between journalism and PR. Um, This comes out of Pew Research, a very well-known research organization, and they did a study. um, And they said basically that after all this really bad news in the news industry, seemingly endless rounds. I mean, we've talked about it here, the disruption that's going on, staff cutbacks, all of those kinds of things. Anybody sort of considering a career in journalism or veteran, you know, writers and journalists that are trying to find a new job. And they basically found that there was a huge salary gap between PR specialists and 
reporters. And so, I mean, what do you think, Joe? Is this just like, uh, duh, or is this, or is there something here? Well, there's two two things. By the way, I love almost all of what Pew does. So I mean, yeah. they, I love the, but <laughs> this one. When I read this, and I'm like, <laughs> I just wanted to. It should have just been duh. Okay, you got one journalism, one industry that's having business model issues, and you're getting public relations, which is they're mostly being funded by larger brands with corporate coffers. Oh my God, are you kidding me? They're actually paying public relations people more than journalists. That's hard to believe. I mean, that's kind of what my take. Like, did we really need this published in the first did place? Did we need a Pew Research study to tell us that? Right? The, well, the second thing is, so they make this big – this is the stats. You can say anything with stats, and we just take them at face value. Right, right. It's six, six cents difference than when they did it 10 years ago. Six cents on a dollar. Okay, right. that's 6%, it's 6% difference or whatever you want to say. Maybe a right. little bit more than that, but it's not a it's not like a huge huge change. I actually would have expected more, because since two thousand four to two thousand thirteen, that's really when we saw the business models change. That's really when newspapers lost most of those people and most lost most of that revenue. Right. So, I'm actually pleasantly surprised with these numbers. They look a heck of a lot better. And my last question, and I'll let you take it, is: Does this include brand journalists? This is just like traditional journalists, right? Yeah, no, this is just reporters. Yeah, right? reporters. Just, They're not so, yeah, this is not like the brand journalist that works for Qualcomm or Cisco Systems or John Deere or anything, right? This is No, who's probably getting paid even more. Yeah, right? they're getting so paid. They, that's that's what I that's <laughs> what we should do. I want to know the pay difference between journalists that work for traditional media companies versus journalists that work for brands. I would right. pro- well, I would, I'd say that's it's probably double. Yes, it's it's almost assuredly, right? But we can't say that. But it, that would be a great story, not this story. This story, <laughs> they didn't need to publish. Well, this the, adding that third leg to this study would have been would have been much more interesting, right? So, you know, looking at the entire career path of a of, of a journalist from college through, because, you know, if you think about where those brand journalists are getting hired from, right? So, if I'm, you know, if if you're the if you're the, you know, if you're running the newsroom at you know, at, at SAP or Qualcomm, like you said, you know, if you're doing that and you came out of J school and you actually went through and maybe you came through a PR agency, you know, you went to the journalism, you wrote for a while for a daily paper as a kid, and then you got into a PR firm and then you worked for a PR firm for a while. And now you're a brand journalist at this, you know, is that the new career path or does it, do do you just skip all that and go right to brand journalism and go, you know, and, 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 and get into marketing? There's actually, I can't think about it, uh, where it came from, but Andy Crestadina sent us an article, which I think was published in The Guardian, and I don't know if you have that, but but basically he talked about the fact that content, mar- that it was basically, I think, seven skills that reporters and journalists have that content marketers need, and I think that's what you're talking about, right? I mean, that's yeah. why if you were going to become a content marketing professional or a brand journalist i mean yeah i mean i think getting your earning your stripes in traditional media is a great choice yeah um and i think that's where if i'm looking for somebody to oversee my content marketing program i'm looking for somebody that's had some traditional media experience first yeah, and foremost. exactly but my, exactly. my question last question on this one i don't want to belabor the point but when they say pr specialists does this include social media folks does it or I don't know that they define public it. relations specialist is very very broad. You could fit a lot into that sandwich. Well, sure. I mean, basically, that's a that's a that's a supersized sub from Subway. <laughs> I 
wish we were paid by Subway because that would make this really, really good. Like ding, 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 ring the bell. Today's PR specialist brought to you by Subway, where you can get double meat and extra cheese and some native advertising $5, for your five dollar, five dollar foot logs. <laughs> I haven't. Speaking been of sponsors, <laughs> speaking of sponsors, who is our wonderful sponsor this oh week? Oh my gosh, it's that time! Oh yes, uh, we have a wonderful sponsor this week. Uh, we are sponsored by Smartling, and if you have not checked out their white paper, I'm going to give you the information on this fantastic. Uh, by the way, we did hear from a couple of our readers this week on this white paper that they thought it was really helpful. It's out, fantastic white paper. It's reach, really, really good. Reach out to the folks there. And we haven't had a, a, a sponsor that's been this in the weeds on global, and this is super yep. important. So basically the whole um, white paper from SmartLink talks about a multilingual web website and that it's your gateway to global. So if you're thinking about global, you have to think about these things. You can't just look at translated content. It has to be how do I provide my web visitors with an authentic and transparent user experience And that's exactly why SmartLink put together this white paper. It's called Creating an Optimal User Experience for Global Website Visitors. If you have a global presence at all, you need to download this and read it. It really contains all the best practices for companies that are building a global brand along uh, across uh, multiple languages. Check it out. Download it now at bitly.com slash PNR dash global. That's bitly.com slash PNR dash global. That's all lowercase. And we'll put this in the show notes. But thanks again to our good friends at SmartLink for putting this together for us. And, and, and huge hat tip to them because they, you know, for them to recognize how content marketing is really changing the, the landscape in a global and, and offer some thought leadership here. I mean, I didn't, I didn't even tell you this, but, um, and you know how I'm connected into that enterprise software sort of global content thing. And, and I actually had two, I won't say competitors of theirs, but I'll say two people, you know, two companies that are do very related things to what they do. Go, wow! I would have never thought to put that together. Um, and and hats off to them. And they were actually asking me how they, you know, how they actually did that. So it's a it's hats off to them for having the vision to be able to do that. A good example of content marketing and action. boy, there you go, there you go, there you go. Native advertising. <laughs> as I pet my white cat. <laughs> Okay, it is now time for the show that we love to love, and that is our rants and raves section where Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave over something that uh, is giving us a little agita or just something we want to show a little love to. And uh, I have this old marketing again this week. Hint, hint, Mr. Oh, yeah. Okay, Um, I'm up next week. You got um, it. And so uh, I have it this week, so I'm going to go first, and mine is very short. Um, And it has to do with the very, very sad news um, about Robin Williams this week, um, which, uh, you know, in it, it's, it never fails to, I guess surprise me is the right word, how these things come in threes, right? Um, you know, so first it's Robin Williams and then it's Lauren Bacall, who I had a huge crush on. Um, and then of course we lost Don Pardo and we've, um, and I'm forgetting somebody else who we just we lost, lost Horshack. this week. Uh, Horshack died. Yes, of course. And, you know, but Robin Williams, of course, was the 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 big news uh, this week, um, and or this last week, I should say. And you know, I found out actually while I was away, I was actually in Atlanta uh, working with the the good folks at UPS uh, on content marketing stuff, and found out that he had died. And the next morning, I actually went in and met with the team there, and we were talking about newsjacking. 
And somebody and and I had just literally the the news was fresh in my mind, and we were talking about newsjacking. And somebody said, "I don't understand what that word means. What can you give me an example?" And I, I half jokingly said, "Here's here's what newsjacking is." I said, "I'll bet you by the end of today that there's an article or at least two that says the four greatest marketing lessons that Robin Williams told us." Yep. And it wasn't even an hour later that there was a blog post that was talking about the four marketing lessons we can learn from Robin Williams. Or, or a hundred blog posts. Yeah. Well, it was just one four hours later, but by, yeah. the, by the time the day was through, there was multiples of them. And then on top of that, there was this memo that came out um, and a hat tip to, to Joe Kay, uh, our creative director, for, for sending this along. I just thought this was just interesting as well, where um, there was a memo sent out by a, a publication that was thanking the editors for their SEO efforts around Robin Williams' death, right? Basically, for using keywords like death and dead and suicide and all of that is and feeding the SEO and it just felt, you know, as much as I understand the way that news organizations work and the, that they actually have to do that, there's just something that felt some so untoward about that whole thing about trying to really game the SEO system as well as newsjack and use the death of Robin Williams to sort of gather some attention. And I get the whole idea of real time and that organizations should be looking to take advantage of events that happen to further a narrative and and all of that. I'm just not quite sure that the death of somebody beloved like Robin Williams is really the place for it. And so that's, I mean, that's my rant is, is that I just don't, I think that as marketers, We've got to have a little self-restraint when it comes to trying to jack up the news and further a position of something we're trying to do. You know, when the lights go out in the Super Bowl, that's one thing. When somebody like Robin Williams dies or there's a riot uh, in the middle of the country or there's something bad going on in the Middle East, I don't think that's the right time to try and jack up the news with lessons for social media gurus or that kind of thing. You know what I mean? Oh, totally. No, I mean, I did... uh post that's uh, getting pretty well passed around this week seven thoughts that will change your content marketing strategy and and the fifth one was forget real-time marketing and the reason why i wrote that was exactly because of the example that joe k sent us and it was a horrific look behind the curtains which which is a has been done for a long long time but now we're seeing kind of people focus on this and then brands are getting on top of it my only take would be to those listening is don't even get involved in real-time marketing unless you have a content marketing process that's working near perfect then then you could maybe think about real-time marketing opportunities it's such a great point it's such a great point i mean when they interviewed and i'm forgetting her name off the top of my head when they interviewed the the woman who who ran that for oreo and they talked about that was 18 that oreo real-time marketing effort was 18 months in the planning stages. That's right. The, yeah, the they had lawyers stages. in that room. They had oh. their creative directors. You had all kinds of people in that room when that happened, and it hit. They, they you know, they, they they struck lightning or struck gold or oil, whatever you want to say. Um, right. But most of the times it's going to turn out really horrible for most people, and I think we've seen some of the worst in this Robin Williams episode. So that was yeah, yeah. Great point to bring that up. Um, I have a rant and a rave. I'll try to be brief here. My, I'm, I'm taking an article here from the Los Angeles Times on Amazon's ebook numbers. And basically, the title of the article is What Amazon's ebook numbers are and aren't telling you. And this is a, a rant against 
Amazon. Uh, for as much as I love, <laughs> be careful, what, my friend. I know. You know for as much I'm as I love <laughs> Amazon, and by the way, Amazon.com <laughs> sells the majority of my book. And by the way, I had a rate. <laughs> I'm sorry. Last week I raved about Audible, which yeah. is oh, okay. and now Good. I'm yeah. ranting. Make, yeah. So I save know yourself now, it's my a two friend. Two sides, two sides of the same okay, coin. Okay, I got you. Um, yeah. You're impartial. I'm You're impartial. impartial. Nobody, hey, that's let nobody say that Joe Joe Polizzi is an impartial. That's exactly right. I'm going to go after all the big cats. The um, <laughs> this interesting thing, and I don't know if you've been paying attention, but it's the idea that Amazon wants all eBooks to come down to nine dollars and ninety nine cents because they feel that's the way that they should be priced. And that more people they and they go through this hilarious setting that they say if customers would buy a hundred thousand copies of a particular ebook at fourteen dollars and ninety nine cents, then customers would buy one hundred seventy four thousand copies of that same ebook for nine dollars and ninety nine cents, and that means that the author would make three hundred thousand dollars more money or something like that. And I look at that and I'm laughing because that basically, and this is coming from somebody that doesn't understand writing, I guess, or creation. Because all that, if you if you say that all this content is worth nine ninety nine and all needs to be the same, that means the writing is valued the same, and that's absolutely not true. Um, and this is the big thing that they've always I've always seen on the ebook side that you've used as an argument. You say because there's no production cost, because there's no printing and no binding, and you don't have to pay this and that and the other. That you're basically profiting on the nine ninety nine. So don't get greedy uh, for the 14.99 or 17.99 or whatever and that's why i don't think and you you know you and i we've been through this process many times about doing a book you know you're right in the in the midst of your book when right now when you're looking at you don't understand all the people in that process right if you're looking at hey you first of there's the writer then you've got the editor then you've got maybe an assistant editor maybe you got a proofreader maybe you got a copy editor you got a fact checker you got a cover designer a layout person Who's doing the marketing? Got a publicist. Right. You know, those right. are the people that you're paying. It's not just the production costs. So I think that that's the whole argument that they make about content being charged the same thing because it will make everybody Amazon's life a lot easier. I think it's a problem. I hope they don't win this battle. I hope that writers and publishers can still come in and say, I want to charge whatever we want to charge, and we're gonna, we think the market can bear this. I think it just makes perfect sense. It's almost like... And they, here's if they do this, this is what's going to happen. Somebody's going to game the system. You and I, you know, Robert and I could come out with a book that could be 30 pages long, and it could be like the size of an ebook or white paper. And you know what we got to charge for it? Nine ninety nine. It's the right. same price as managing content marketing. That's 200 pages that we came out with a couple years ago. Right. Doesn't make any sense, right? But that's what's what's going to happen because they're just trying to streamline it in this way. I think it's a problem. I don't know if you have a take on any of that. Well, the only thing I would say is is that this is you know so I, and I'm not playing devil's advocate here, although it's going to sound like I am. Um, this is this is not a dissimilar argument that I heard from the record companies when Apple said we're going to basically flatline everybody all songs at ninety nine cents. Um, and you know they basically the record companies wanted to be able to charge more for certain albums and certain songs by certain artists. Um, and Apple said no. Everybody is going to be at ninety nine cents, and and that's the way it's going to be. So, which is now a buck twenty nine, or a buck twenty nine, yeah. Right. And, well, and, but was and, it ninety nine? Right. And so, um, which now they are basically now now Apple has, and I totally get it. It's a lot easier yeah. as for consumers that I know that basically all my songs are the same. But I I think that takes away 
a lot of the free market capable. Um, I don't know. I'm getting into a totally different. This is not yeah. even the, not even a marketing show anymore. <laughs> this is terrible. Hey, so yeah, I didn't mean to be. A, I'm not trying to be a devil's advocate no. there because I don't know the answer. To I that. think I don't. I I I would tend to agree with you in that books tend to be bigger pieces of work. Um, and and what I mean by that is is that they have very different uh, approaches, right? So when I write a novel, uh, you know. It, it 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 is one kind of process, and when I actually spend fifteen years researching a particular topic for a biography of a historical figure, it's a complete other thing. And when I actually go out and do you know do research for a business book, it's a complete other thing. So it's a very very different process for creation of a book than it is really for uh, for any other kind of form. So. I don't disagree with you at all, and I just uh, no. It, I it, I actually think the bigger issue is is that Amazon has is needs to make a better better argument. Yeah, their argument. No, I think that's a, the, that's the, a good the point. worst part. I wasn't going to bring this up, but the worst part about this is it goes in to say, "Hey, author, writer, you can be a best selling author if you do this because more best selling. Uh, if you're cheaper, if you're in that nine ninety nine, um, you'll have a better opportunity to be on a bestseller list." Who are you talking to? Ten people? Like, right. what? Are, right. There, there right. are a hundred thousand right. writers, authors out there that would never ever be best on a bestseller list, and would never consider right. them because they have a target audience of maybe a thousand people. That's we're right. not targeting. Right. This is not Harry Potter. That's so right. I think that's, that's the right. and that's a great that point because because if I'm a if I'm a scholar of you know if your textbook uh, the, yeah the greek language and i'm selling a textbook on through an ebook my audience may only be 4 or 5000 people total but the, the amount of work that i went into that i'm going to charge them 120 dollars they're going to they have a chance to sell maybe 5000 copies yeah. at the high end and maybe if they sell that book for 40 to 50 dollars retail and maybe a 20 dollar ebook That's maybe they're going to maybe they'll make something That's a great point Actually, anyways, the last thing I just wanted to share, and this is an image, and I don't know if I can bring it back up here, but I was (laughs) saw this thing on Facebook, which was the scientific seven minute workout. So I'm trying to figure out how can I get in shape and not run six miles a day. Um, So I saw, oh, hey, scientific seven minute workout. So I got to give kudos to Google because there's an ad at the top. It's a Google. It's an AdSense ad. And it says, think with Google. Thinkwithgoogle.com. Check out our latest insights and sign up for our e-newsletter. It's in the New York Times. So they're ba- the Google <laughs> Google's basically spending their own ad money, I guess, if they do charge themselves anything. I'm sure it's an internal charge to the Think With Google folks. And they're promoting their own content marketing in their own ad. And I just thought that that was – we talked about that last week with Adobe and CMO.com. I just think that's brilliant that they're doing that and trying to steal audience away from the Times. That's fantastic. So that's, that's my that's, that's yep. my Raven rant. Very very good. Well, it is time for the namesake of the show. It's this old marketing, and we have a quick one this week, and it just comes out of uh, a wonderful visit that I had last week with the folks at UPS. Who um, I tweeted this out uh, when I got there. It is a group that I was very privileged to work with. Um, they just have a stunning, first of all, campus um, there. Um, just uh, the way that it it sort of is nestled into the hillside of Atlanta and got to meet up with a number of people there talking to them about all the wonderful things they're doing from a content marketing perspective and try and help them out as best I can. But one of the things that they talked about that I wanted to use was 
this magazine that they that they've created for years and years and years i think two decades now compass magazine um by ups and it uh it's a it has started out as a print magazine as you might expect and it's gone it now goes out to 600,000 subscribers um across the world mostly logistics managers who are trying to figure out how to be better at exporting how to be better at shipping how to be better at getting more and more effective uh a business uh, out of there, out of the way that they ship and move products uh, across uh, across the world. You know, we often think of UPS as sort of this the the delivery service that brings us our Amazon goods and whatnot. But they also have a huge business. In fact, the lion's share of their business is actually moving all kinds of products and for logistics and big. You know, Amazon being one of them, moving those big uh, big shipments of product, not from the last mile from the distribution house to your door, but rather from their distribution centers to other distribution centers and to, you know, and to, of course, um, ways to get them to you. So it's just a fantastic example of a, of a magazine that is really focused on helping those shipping managers become better at their jobs and has somewhat become a, you know, sort of a small business, medium business, because helping those shipping managers sort of do the things that the big boys do. They launched a digital version of that uh, in this year, actually. So uh, one of the reasons I wanted to bring them up is because 2014 launched their digital version. They now have 400,000 subscribers to the digital version of the magazine. Some of those overlap, um, but ostensibly about a million subscribers now to their Compass magazine. Um, And I won't go too much further than that, but they do have some big plans for Compass magazine and the way they want to sort of evolve it in the future and what they're thinking of from a social aspect and from a target audience aspect and from a content and editorial aspect. So some just wonderful things happening at UPS um, broadly with content marketing and Compass magazine being a great example of this old marketing and and something that they're that they're moving forward with in the future. So just a wonderful example. I, I, I had a great time there. That's great. I've known about that magazine for a long time. I guess my my only question and follow-up would be, is the digital content different in some way than the print content? There is more of it, and they refresh it. The, the print magazine is only done, I believe, now quarterly. Um, and so uh, they have four issues per year. The digital version is upgraded, uh, updated uh, monthly, I believe, and they add new new articles to that digital. They right now it is being done as a digital magazine and kind of a digital magazine format, oh, which like is a quite flip linear. Book. Yeah, yes, exactly right. Um, and they're they're actually thinking of of alternate ways to do that, but um, uh, uh, you know to make it a little more a little less. Uh, linear as it were but um, but other than that yeah it's it's updated a little more frequently and they do have extra content for it all right good so i never when you said the hillside of atlanta i, I had to, it took me a couple of seconds i'm like is there a hillside in atlanta i guess there is, is oh there it's really? beautiful oh yeah north of atlanta it's just just I, there's usually a, a car in front of me a car to the left car to the right and car in the back so i i usually don't see the hillside when Atlanta, Atlanta's the worst traffic place. <laughs> but I love it's my bad. friends. In it was Atlanta. bad. It was bad traffic. There, there was no doubt about that. But it was their campus is just absolutely stunning. I mean, one of the things about their campuses is that it was built around the environment. And so the creek goes underneath the building and it goes around the building. They didn't disturb anything or trees that sort of go up and around the building. They sort of built around. They didn't clear out the entire hillside and build a building on top of it. They actually built it in the context of the forest. It's just stunning. It's just beautiful. Excellent. Yep. 
All right. All right. Where are you going? What are you, what are you doing? You're back, you're back from the island, the, the, the long-lost island yep. of Ohio, Kelly Island? Or what's, <laughs> that was what's, the, what's now happening? My last mini-vacation, three weeks until Content Marketing World, head down this week uh, working on our Content Marketing Award winners and finalists and putting those video montages together. We're filming all the pre-roll stuff that we're putting together. I'm reviewing all the presentations from over – I think we have over 150 speakers this year, which is just crazy. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just, we're heads down now and, uh, just getting things rolling. So that's what I'll be doing for the next uh, couple of weeks as we roll into our live, uh, PNRs, this old it's marketing be fantastic. on it's Sunday. Fantastic. I think it'd be September 7th. That's we'll right. do it at our international day, uh, right next to the Weston at a restaurant called Urban Farmer. So that should be, right. should be fun. So, and you're, you're working on the book, I take it? Or? I am, I am working on the book. However, that's taking a little bit of a backseat this week because, well, we've got a little, a few little surprises planned for content marketing world and those are sort of in the can. Um, but I'm working on my presentations. I'm, I'm fine tuning, polishing, Getting my practice on, um, trying to practice up for my. I have three sessions. I have a workshop, and then I have a session, double session, on on Tuesday, and then I have uh, and then I have a little uh, mini keynote on Wednesday. So super psyched, and also you know just got to get I got to get I got to get good at that stuff before I get. Oh, to it's gonna be fantastic! And everyone who hasn't signed up yet, shame on you. Do it now. Absolutely. I think actually, oh, yeah, I it, we got we got. Coupon code is expiring tomorrow or the 22nd or something. It's on the website. So go to contentmarketinginstitute.com and check it out. We'll see you there. There it is. There's your native advertising for Content Marketing World. And that is (laughs) it for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose signing off. And tweet us up, won't you? Hashtag this old marketing. We love getting the tweets saying you miss us on Tuesday. Um, So you'll see us tomorrow night for sure. But do tweet us up for anything you might want to ask. Or, you know, if you've got a question, you can send an email to thisoldmarketing at contentinstitute.com. And if you like this episode, all of the popular culture, the politics, and the, you know, general whining that we did about native advertising this episode, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher.com. All of those links are on the show notes available at thisoldmarketing.com. Remember, everybody, it's your story to tell. Tell it well. We'll see you next week on This Old Marketing.